Hi, this is Ibarian X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Well, by the time you're listening to this, if you listen this, to this episode soon after it's released, I'll likely already be in uh, in Europe. I'm going to be in Paris, France, for the most part, for a month on, on business. And I'll be conducting some interviews for the show while I'm there, as well as getting out and practicing some of my own photography. But while I'm there, I'm hoping to get together with some listeners who are going to be in cities where I'm going to be in. On, uh, on February 22nd, I'll be in Brussels for a little bit, and also in London on the 28th. Uh, I'm going to be spending most of my time in Paris, so I'm tentatively scheduling something for the 31st of May, which is, is a Saturday. Um, so if you're listening to this show, if you don't follow me on Twitter or Facebook, why don't you start doing that now? Because I'll probably be announcing the specifics of any sort of meetup on, uh, for those specific locations on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. I've, uh, this is going to be my second time to, to Paris, and I'm really excited about uh, going out there again. But even more so, having the chance to conduct some interviews for the show and meet some people who are, are, are fans. So uh, follow me on Twitter and on Facebook, and you'll find links in in the show notes. And in another exciting bit of news, I'm joining up with photographer Valerie Jardine for a photo workshop next year in Los Angeles. It's going to be a street photography workshop in the heart of downtown Los Angeles. And we uh, are going to be together teaching a course on February 27th, 28th, and March 1st. So it's going to be a two and a half day workshop and uh, it's going to be exciting for you who know Valerie. I've interviewed her on the show and she makes regular appearances on Twitch. She teaches workshops all over the world and this is going to be her first time in Los Angeles and it's going to be my first time working with her. Uh, spaces are limited. We're only going to allow about 12 people into this course because we want it to be a really intimate experience. And uh, her experience combined with my knowledge of street photography and the city of Los Angeles, it will no doubt be an amazing experience for anyone who's really interested in street photography, whether you're just beginning or whether you've been you know, trying your hand at it for a while and just want to learn a, a couple of new skill sets. So visit uh, the, the blog. I'll have some uh, links on there or visit Valerie Jardine's site where you can actually sign up for the course. And uh, I hope to see some of you then. Today's guest is Craig Sametko, who I had the opportunity to meet in person a couple of couple of weeks ago at the Leica Gallery. His work is work that I've been familiar with, but this was the first opportunity that I had to meet him in person. And I knew immediately that I wanted to have him as a guest on the show. In our brief conversation, I just felt like I'd have a great conversation with him, and he didn't disappoint. Um, Craig has produced two books. One is called Unposed, and his newest one is India Unposed. And his sort of street photography aesthetic really comes across in these, in these images. But more importantly, he has a, a great sense of humor, which is inspired by one of his heroes, Elliot Erwitt, who I interviewed sometime last year. The wonderful thing about Craig's story, he's not one of those photographers who started when he was really early. He probably picked up a camera seriously in his late 30s, and within a short period of time, relatively, 
uh, in about 10 years, he's been able to establish a name for himself as a photographer with his work being collected and exhibited um, all over the world. And it's really exciting to hear stories about people who get started with photography a little later in life, but really blossom and, and create unique bodies of work and uh, are really able to do wonderful things with the camera. If you're listening to this show soon after it's released and you're in the L.A. area, you may want to visit the Leica store in Los Angeles, where a current exhibit of Craig Semetko's work is up for up on display. Also, on May 16th and 18th, you'll be conducting a, uh, uh, a workshop at that space. You can find out more in the show, show notes or by visiting the Leica store website. But now sit back and enjoy our conversation with Craig Semetko. Well, Craig, uh, thank you for welcoming me into your home. I, it's, uh, I was really pleased to have a chance to finally get to meet you and even more pleased to have the chance to talk to you. It's my pleasure, Iberian X. I'm, I'm glad you're here. It's, I, I'm really looking forward to hearing a little more about you and having the chance to talk to you because it's one of the interesting parts of your story is that photography wasn't your first career. You didn't seriously pick up a camera until you were in your 40s, right? A little bit sooner than that, but yeah, it was late 30s, right about 40. Yeah, yeah and, um, you, and you've managed to make quite a career for yourself, and I think it's it's really inspiring to, to, to see someone who got started later rather than they're in their teens or in their early 20s, because you hear constant stories about people who are very young, you know, exploding into photography, but it's great to hear people, at least my age, uh, <laughs> who, who got started a little later. Um how do you see that was an advantage for you as opposed to getting started, saying, when you were 21 in college or something like that? That's a good question. You know, it was, it was uh, pointed out to me once. I was doing a talk with, uh, uh, in New Jersey, and they had uh, some other photographers. And I believe it's Robert McNeely, Bob McNeely, a former White House, uh, Clinton White House photographer. We were talking about this, this sort of history, and I was ironically kind of bemoaning the fact that I, I started so late. I was like, I wish I would have started earlier. Think how many more pictures I'd have, mm-hmm. you know, how much more body work. And he said, you know, I would not look at it that way. He says, I, I, I can't tell you how many instances I've found where people have come to it later in life and they have a much richer uh, experience to draw on and they, they're able to uh, see things with their own personal vision. He, he pointed out that a lot of times... He sees uh, young kids going to uh, you know schools, photography schools, whatever it is, and and the way he put it was you know they get this sort of cookie cutter vision that, that that they all come out of school shooting kind of the same way, and it takes them a long time to break out of that and find their own vision. It's, he thought it was a bit of a handicap, which I, I you know thought was a very interesting way to look at it, and so he said the fact that you came to it so late in life with uh, so much experience in you know, a, a completely different field. Well, I mean, still communicating in its own way, uh, really added to uh, what I brought to the table. And I, I, it was very nice of him to say, and uh, it was an interesting viewpoint. I think it's very true because the same could be said of writing, which I know you've practiced your, yourself, mm-hmm. that you have that life experience of, under your belt. And when you're young, you're really sort of not, you've not had that. So you're off, often delving into cliches mm-hmm. and then you're always having that sort of as a young writer or even as a, probably as a young photographer you're really working part partly from what you have consumed 
rather than what you've experienced. So I think that that is probably a really an apt description. Yeah, it, it very much so. And and it's a fine line because you know you can you have to you know your consumption becomes your experience. You know, so you, you even when you're Jim Jarmusch, uh, the, the film director, yeah. had a great quote. He said, basically, steal from everywhere. You know, <laughs> he, says, he says, there is no originality. Don't look for originality. He says, be authentic. Uh, authentic is the prize. You know, originality is, is non-existent. And, and, and I've taken that, to, you know, to mean that it's basically, you know, just putting your own spin on what's already there, you know. Um, and, and so... When you have a lot of life experience, I think it's you're more secure with that, and you're 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 you're, con, you're not concerned with keeping up with the, the current, uh, you know, being original in, in some current new way, and, and you do what you want to do. Like, that's how it worked out for me. I mean, I, I I literally made a decision when I started shooting that I wasn't going to shoot for anybody or anything other than what I wanted to shoot. Because I had spent many years as a writer and performer of, of comedy sketches for, for large corporate meetings. So my scripts always had to be approved, you know. And, oh, okay. and, and so I was very used to that. And, you know, it became a little tiring, you know, after a while. You know, it was always interesting to see what companies, which ones would let me go the farthest. They were always the ones I wanted to invest in because I'm like, they're like, they've got it together. They're the most secure with the, what they do and everything. But, you know, some people are, they were very adamant about, you know, censoring whatever it was I was doing. And so when I discovered this other sort of gift that came out of nowhere, I was, I found out about photography while I was doing a job, a corporate job in, uh, in Asia. I very quickly decided that I was just going to shoot for myself and not, worry about what other people thought of it. And I really didn't make an attempt to show the work until about 2007 or 8. And I started in like 2000. So there were a number of years where the last thing on my mind was, you know, showing the work or being a photographer. I was just shooting for the joy of shooting and shooting things that I thought were interesting. And that was, I had that luxury because I had this other job. Mm -hmm. And, um, I also had the luxury that I, I was really passionate about. I really got hooked hard. Well, tell me about that first photograph and, and why that was such a catalyst for you in yeah. terms of becoming a photographer. Well, it was curious. You know, like I said, I'd been doing this writing and performing uh, for, for almost 20 years at the time, and uh, or certainly 15 anyway. And I had this great job that took me to England, Ireland, Japan, China, all over the United States. Uh, and I... Uh, when I was outside, and I thought, you know, I, sh I didn't even own a camera. I, I said, I should get a camera. I might never go back <laughs> to China. I don't know. So I, I bought like a, a prosumer Nikon, and I went to China and uh, over, over the, in Japan and everything. When I was outside of Shanghai, I took a picture of these two uh, peasant women in a, like a dugout canoe going upstream with these weeping willows and everything kind of hanging over. And when I saw the image... You know, it was it was a bit of a revelation to me because you know I'm used to taking tourist shots or you know here's cousin Earl standing in yeah. front of the Eiffel Tower or something. So when I saw that, I mean I'm not comparing it to National Geographic, but in my little limited scope at the time, I'm like, wow, that looks like National Geographic or, or some you know magazine shot. That's really cool. And and for me, it, it it that my next thought was, well, hey, I'm I'm an actor. I get a lot of free time. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe I can use this medium as another way to tell stories. 
So I, you know, I went to buy a zoom lens for that camera because I thought if I had a big zoom lens, I'd be a really good photographer. And uh, it's kind of a long story, but through a series of events, I ended up buying a, like a rangefinder instead of uh, instead of a zoom for that that camera, and and uh, very rapidly became obsessed with the work of uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson. I had not heard of him. I didn't know who he was, but when I when I was about to purchase that camera, the the, uh, the salesperson had given me some brochures, uh, one of which a wonderful sales pitch. When it, uh, I was prepared to spend you know X amount of money on the Zoom, <laughs> and then and then I find, I go, oh, this is really cool. He put a, an M6 in my hands, and then said, yeah, here, try this on. I went, wow, what is this? And uh, you know, he tells me all the great things, and then I said, well, how, how much is it? You know, and it's like three thousand dollars or something for, for that. Whatever it was, and I said, you're, you're kidding me. He said, no, I'm not, and, and you'll need a lens. <laughs> All right, great. So I, I said, I, I have to, uh, you know, I don't make decisions like this impulsively. i got to yeah. think about it. So he said, here, take these brochures, go home. You won't sleep tonight, and I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> I went, well, that is cheeky. That is, that's a good sales pitch. And uh, he was right. I woke up every two hours <laughs> and started going through this brochure and discovered all of these famous pictures, you know, that were sort of taken with a Leica, but there was an interview with this guy named Henri Cartier-Bresson, who I'd never heard of. And I was taken with his sort of um, philosophy mm -hmm. and, uh, and of course, his, his photographs. And uh, I wanted to learn more about him. And I wanted to shoot pictures like he shot. And, you know, I mean, all of the marketing worked. <laughs> I thought, if I have this camera, maybe I can take pictures like that. You know, you, you learn that it doesn't necessarily work that way. Yeah, but. I, 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 that's, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because you, you may have this great photo that you made in China. Right. And you get this Leica, and you see this brochure, and you go out, and you shoot your first roll, and you go back and go, uh-oh. Yeah, it was all dark, <laughs> like meaning there's nothing on the frame. I'm like, wow, what happened here? But, you know, I was really, it was, you know, I had no experience. And, and so the, the, the gentleman who sold me the camera is, since be, is still a friend of mine to this day really took it upon himself to help me learn how to use it. And, and he kept telling me, he says, one day, one day soon, it's going to click just like a light switch and you're going to figure out how, how all of this relates to each other and then you're not going to have to think about it anymore and you're just going to work on your vision. And he was absolutely right. You know, it, it, uh, about a week or two into it, I said, oh, so that's the relationship between f-stop and shutter speed and, and all, you know, this simple stuff, but yeah. not simple if you'd never done it before. And uh, and then it was then it was all about working on my vision. I was listening to some interviews with some photographers who were part of Tiny Collective, which I don't know if you're aware of. They're a collective of, of street photographers, largely who use uh, mobile uh, mobile cameras. Mm -hmm. And I think two or three of them in their interviews talked about getting to the point of not thinking when they're making photographs about about it being a non-intellectual intellectual process where it's more about response. And you, and you just mentioned it just now. Um, t talk to me about what that feels like for you. And, and now, what do you need to do in order to sort of get yourself into that mind, mindset? Because I know sometimes, some days for me, it's a real struggle to get into that place. Right, right. And the other place, it, it, I, just, I just move into it seamlessly. Effortlessly, but yeah. For you as a, as, a, as a photographer, how important is that? And how and what do you do to ensure that when you go out to photograph that you're in as close to that place as you can possibly control? Right. 
Well, you know, Cartier Bresson talks about it like it's a Zen experience. You know, he, he really talks, he says, don't, don't think. Thinking is, you know, thinking is bad. And as, as I say, I think on my website, thinking constipates things. <laughs> you just try to avoid thinking. You know, we're, we're human beings, we're conscious, we're, we can't help but think about it, right? But I agree 100% with what the photographers in the collective were saying. You, you really need to get to a point where you don't have to think about the uh, technology at all. Um, ironically, I'm that way with with an M, but I'm, I'm I have a harder time with even a, an iPhone at this point. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm double, I, you know, just trying to get the thing to do what I want it to do. I'm, I'm so used to shooting this camera that I, you know, once you're used to shooting something, it's you know, it's good to stick with it, right? I mean, if it becomes an extension of you. What do I do to get in that flow? You know, that you're describing basically what they call a flow experience. I think, yeah. and and that's that's a curious thing, and it doesn't always happen. Um, and some days, no matter how much you try, in fact, if you try many times, that <laughs> exactly defeats the whole purpose of a flow experience. But you know, you're you're shooting for total concentration on what you're doing without really any other thought. You know, I mean. Some people, you know, might call it oh, in the zone or, or whatever. But you know, when you look at great athletes, you know, like, I mean, Tiger Woods, you know, or uh, Michael Jordan, you know, I'm dating myself here, but I, I can remember. I mean, you see pictures of Jack Nicklaus, look, lining up a putt. That guy looked, you know, he's like right. insane, you know. So the thing is, is I try to, I'll, I'll find myself humming a song. Uh, uh, for, uh, what, in whatever it is, whatever I'm at, appropriate to that location, it's kind of cheesy. Sometimes I, I get into a flow and a rhythm, and I literally find myself walking to a rhythm and turning my head from side to side in a certain rhythm, and I try to match what's going on in the street around me, uh, the, the rhythm of the street, and 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 it sounds very you know hooey, I suppose, but if you can get to to a point where you're you're sort of within the experience and not outside of the experience, it, it, it you know it's very effective. Yeah, I love the description, the rhythm of the street, because that's something that I feel that exists there. Absolutely, and it's it's hard to describe to someone who isn't a photographer. But I think that for anyone who's creative, especially a musician, they they understand that, and probably as an actor as well. There's well, a, there's a there's certainly this 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 thing. Um, this rhythm thing that, that we're describing that is part and parcel about getting outside of ourselves enough that we're able to see something and respond to it and then press that shutter release button at just that right moment. And that, and I think a big part of that is freedom from judgment. Because I know that for me, and I'd like you to sort of riff on this, sometimes I find myself, and I'll judge something before I've shot it. Yeah. And then I go that's not the place to be. I can't be making judgments of something even before I photographed it. That's for, that's for later. And that's one of the, the, the things that I, when I'm not in that zone yet, I find myself doing is when I'm getting pre-critical of what's around me. And it's like, I got to shake that if I ever hope to be able to get to that place where I'm just in that place where I'm just seeing and reacting and making photographs. Uh, you've described it perfectly. I mean, I, 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 that happens to me uh, often when I'm out there and I find myself, uh, that's an interesting picture. Uh, it's not really that interesting. I'm going to move on. You know, and I make a judgment, right? Mm -hmm. And I've come to realize that if there's any inkling in my body whatsoever that says that's an interesting thing, 
take the picture Absolutely. immediately and then worry about it later because there's something that it sparked in you for a reason. And more often than not, you surprise yourself with what you get. You know, I mean, it, you know, some of my better photographs, I think, sometimes are, are created as, a, as kind of a, an afterthought. It's <laughs> literally, I'm not thinking as I'm doing it. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't, or even as I'm doing it, I'm thinking, this is sort of a, a lesson in futility. I don't know really why I'm doing it. I mean, there's a picture right now that, you know, is, is being exhibited and uh, people are responding to. It's of a guy going up an escalator and I'm standing behind him. And I, as I'm looking at him, I, I realize he had his head hung. Yeah, I saw that. With the red, the red mm -hmm. coat on. And, you know, I just went, I said, you know, how many pictures can you take of people on escalators? It's, there's a million. So I'm, do, as I, I'm thinking this as I, after I took the first shot, you know. And then I said, yeah, just take another one just for the heck of it. And I, I probably took two frames of there. And, and it's funny. I look at it now and people are like, wow, that's really, you know. I mean, a couple of people have singled that out as their favorite one in this, you know, 50 print exhibition going on, which astounds me. Yeah, I, it never ceases to amaze me which pictures certain people dismiss and which ones people love. You know, yeah. it's fascinating because it's, it's obviously highly, highly subjective. Yeah, I think it goes back to that whole idea of what we talked about at the beginning about our life experience of shape us. Because all those things that we experience in our life really kind of dictate what we're responding to. Even though we may not be able to aptly describe why you're responding to that guy in that red coat going up the escalator as opposed to something else. Mm -hmm. Or why I would respond to what I respond to. Mm -hmm. I think it's all, part of it is born of all that, that life experience. And you never can really put words on it because it just happens in, in a fraction of a, a second. Yeah. And I think that the challenge of, as of a, a being a, a great photographer is being able to trust that, even though you can't completely understand it. Mm -hmm. You've got to trust your instinct. You know, that's, a, that's actually wonderful advice all the way across the board <laughs> through life, but it, it really comes into play, you know, visually like this when you see something that grabs your attention. And the other thing is I, I, I tell students when I teach a workshop, if you see something that you think, oh, that's interesting, you know, take the picture then, you know, because so often people will be driving by and they'll see something and they'll go, well, I'll get that on, on the way home or whatever. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's literally never the same, even if it's a static or, an, you know, inanimate object, the weather has changed, the lighting has changed, the ethers have changed, something has changed about the situation. So you, you've got to nail it when you, when your gut says, you know, shoot the picture. Yeah. You're known for the humor in your photographs. I wonder where they're, when you take the photographs, whether they're humorous to you or whether you are seeing something absurd about the situation and that's what you're responding to and, and that's why you make the photograph. I would say it's more the latter than the former. I mean, there's a lot of absurd stuff going on in the world, you know, <laughs> at all times. And um, some of it is more absurd than others. And it's, you really want to, at least I, I'm drawn to it. I just find the absurdities you know, fascinating and kind of hilarious. And, uh, you know, it comes from, it, it, it's all fueled through my comedy background. You know, I, that's, I often say that, you know, I came to photography not for, because of a love of photography. It was, it was, it was a love of characters and story and, and, and absurdity really, you know? And so just to touch on something you mentioned earlier, we, we were talking about timing and rhythm, the rhythm. Mm -hmm. 
I always use that word rhythm when I talk about writing a script. I mean, a comedy script, I mean, a joke, you know, everything. That is totally about rhythm. It's, you, you get, it's, it's in the structure of the joke, in the structure of the sentence or the paragraph that you're writing to, to start slow and then get more rapid and then, you know, culminate with the punchline. And it really, in my experience, transfers itself wonderfully to, to taking pictures, you know, and uh, find myself doing that on a regular basis, you know, I'm thinking in terms of, I see absurdity and, 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 and the, what I try to do then is, you know, bring the sort of structure of composition to that situation. In a perfect world, I'm trying to sort of measure, or, um, bring to marry the, marry the talents, <clears throat> the compositional talents of Cartier-Bresson with the, with the humorous talents of, of Elliot Erwitt, you know, and not to, not to say Elliot's not has a wonderful composition. He, he really, really does. Yeah. I should say more the geometric composition of Cartier-Bresson and maybe the, the the humor of Elliot Erwitt. I mean, those are probably my two favorite photographers. I do. I see the absurd first, and then it makes me laugh. And I just and I I, I guess there's an instinct to want to share that with people. Yeah. And in much the same way of telling a funny story. In your point about Bresson about his compositions. Um, is really important because people fixate on the on the on the moment. But he was trained as a painter primarily yeah. before he ever picked up a, a camera, and that's what informs so many of his compositions. Because the effectiveness of that of that significant moment is completely colored by this sort of unconscious awareness of what makes a good composition. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that when I was looking through uh, some of his images this past weekend, and it struck me. That that so many of his photographs are so controlled mm -hmm. for the most part, mm -hmm. except for that one little thing. Whether it's a element. man leaping over a puddle, whether it's a boy, you know, snatching two bottles of wine walking down the street, uh, almost all of those compositions are so well formed, and yet it's just waiting for that decisive moment that he's as he described, and mm -hmm. it made me appreciate what he was able to do. Uh, as a as a photographer, because both that awareness of the camera, as we talked about, mm -hmm. but also that awareness of what you're doing in terms of composition has to be an almost unconscious part of the process. Yeah. We have to be so well informed in terms of the camera and composition that we're not thinking about it, and that we're free to actually go ahead and make the photograph and make the moment happen. And it seems like that's really what drives so many of your photographs. A friend, uh, we were talking, and I, I'm not. I can't remember who actually used the line, but it, it, we we came up with this term, compositional reflex. Oh, wow. <laughs> actually, I think he came up with it. I have to give him credit. But it was uh, really uh, a great line because it, it really is what you need to develop. And people ask me, well, how do you develop that? And I have no idea other than, I mean, you know, going back to what we early, earlier talked about, I immersed myself in the work of Cardi Persona and people who are acknowledged masters you know i just i looked at a lot of pictures so that i've got this sort of you know old school visual rolodex in my head that is showing me these pictures and, and anytime i see something in life that remotely approaches one of the pictures that i've seen i i get very excited you know and, mm -hmm. and animated want to take that photograph i i think by having done that by looking at great composition for so long it, it, it becomes more of an ingrained part of your, your, your technique. Yeah. And uh, I was, you know, 
I'm blown away when I look at his photographs and you, you hit it right on the head. Yeah, he, he's famous for, you know, the decisive moment, but it's really the geometry in those photographs Absolutely. that is stunning. I mean, because oh, I mean, on top of the fact that he's got the moment, it's like you said, I mean, there's mm -hmm. a, this crazy geometry going on and then, oh my God, on top of that, he's got this crazy moment happening and he's a visual genius. And, and I, and I, you know, I, wasn't there with him when he shot all his pictures, but I, I would presume that he had to have, you know, seen a, a number of these initially and, and then waited for, you know, seen the background and then waited for the foreground to develop. I'm sure he must have. But I'm also sure from, you know, firsthand accounts of people that I read that he just saw stuff as he was going by, took one frame and kept walking. And, and you know, the, there's a one particular picture in particular that I'm referring to I don't know the name of it, but it's, it's sort of these high windows, and it's obviously like some sort of outside building, and there's like kids sitting in the window sills, you know, sort of facing each other, mm -hmm. two in the front, two in the back. And it's this crazy composition that's fantastic. And I remember the guy saying, we were out for a walk, and I was talking, and, and uh, he just took, he had his camera out, and he turned, took a picture, and we kept walking, and I didn't think anything of it. And then later... That was the I saw that that was the picture that he took, mm -hmm. and it's you know anybody would be thrilled to have that have taken that picture the the uh, you know just to see that. Yeah. But that comes from not only consuming the work of others, you know, and, and sort of training our minds to see in that way, mm -hmm. but it also t involves just making a lot of photographs. So yeah. so talk about that in terms of your development as a photographer in terms of. You know, how often were you going out there and making images? Was it a sort of a daily thing? Was it, you know, any any spare time that you had? Did you just squeeze in some images? What what was that process for you? Well, you know, it's, uh, an interesting comparison. It's not really apples to apples, but but Malcolm Gladwell, you know, yeah, uh, uh -huh. said you know you, it takes ten thousand hours to be an expert at something. And coincidentally, Cardi Brisson said, your first 10,000 pictures are your worst. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, while it doesn't follow exactly, it, it's got a nice sound to it, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Um, and, uh, and, and it's been my experience that they're both right. <laughs> you know, I, uh, to answer your question, though, when I first started, you know, I, I had the camera with me all the time. I, I now carry a camera with me all the time. Um, and it was, you know, it was kind of funny. My friends made fun of me, you know, <laughs> like uh, Simico goes out on a date on a, you know, first he brings <laughs> his camera, you know, I remember at the time early on, I was talking to my dad and he's like, well, no wonder you don't have a girlfriend. How are you ever going to go out on a date when you got that thing stuck to your face? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, this is where, you know, I mean, I really had it with me, you know, all the time. And I was taking all kinds of pictures. And, and, and it would, you know, it would, not my interest, but my, my shooting would flag a little, you know, if I was in L.A. When it really got hyped, though, was when I would go somewhere and, uh, and travel somewhere. I was very fortunate that there was a, a seven or eight year period where my sister lived in, in the Netherlands. And so, you know, my first book, uh, in, uh, my first book unposed, there's a number of shots in there from the Netherlands and, and various parts of Europe, because I would go visit my sister once or twice a year. He goes, you know, see my sister, free place to stay, <laughs> home cooked meal every now and then, you know, and then go back out and I'd shoot, 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 shoot. I guess to answer your question, I really did it quite, quite often, you know, and, and you, and it was harder, you know, when you're, I mean, I learned on film and so, you know, you don't see your mistakes immediately like you do with, with digital now. I mean, that's really one of the 
I mean, if you're learning, that is such a blessing, you know, because you, if you, if you're conscious of learning from your mistakes, which unfortunately a number number of people aren't, I think they just kind of keep rattling them out. But if you are conscious of wanting to get better and, and really look at what you, you can see what you've done instantaneously and see why it does or doesn't work. Why are mistakes important? Uh, Mistakes are so important in everything because, you know, I think we really learn more from our mistakes. In fact, I'm sure of it. We learn more from our mistakes than our successes. You know, and I can take this back to my writing for, for corporate meetings. <laughs> my, my standard thing that I would do, and sometimes it was hard to convince them to do this, but I, I oftentimes worked with a, uh, a group of, of uh, comedic and uh, imp- improvisational actors. What I would always want to do is uh, write a, a sketch on, like, the worst possible sales call. You know, like doing everything wrong. Well, number one, because it's hilarious. But number two, if the reason it's hilarious is because people realize that they have done all of those things. And when you recognize, you have a recognition of the mistake that you're making, then you are less apt to make the mistake again the next time out because you are sort of self-humiliated when you think about, I saw that comedy sketch and I'm not going to do that again, right? And you get better if you're if you're a conscious person and you're aware. You you realize okay that's a mistake, that was wrong. This is how you get better. It's and and you really can't really get if you're not. You know some people don't think they're making mistakes. You know that's that's the real problem. They think it's <laughs> yeah. all great. You know, and and that's why it's good to you know have somebody who's you know better than you at at, at whatever it is you're doing as a mentor, or at least uh, learn from that person. I heard a guy, this guy blew me away, man, with this quote. I, I was at a, it was like a, an outside, you know, kind of flea market, actually in Lincoln Square in New York. Uh-huh. So I, I don't know what you would call that. It's probably not flea market is the appropriate term. It was in Lincoln Square, so it was kind of nice stuff. Yeah. But there was this photographer there, and it was this an older guy. And, and it was like one of the first times I'd ever been to one of these things where I was taken with this guy's work. And I'm looking at him, and I don't know, he's pricing these things like $300. And I look, I said, dude, you're killing me here. you got to price these things way, way higher. These are really, this is quality stuff, you know. And he was very humble and very modest about it all. But I thought his work was great. And the more we talked, he just came out with this, this, this sort of phrase. He said, well, you know. It's important to remember that no matter how good you get, there's always going to be somebody who's better than you are. And what you need to do is seek that person out and learn from them. That way, you will always be humble and you'll always be growing as an artist until you die. Amen to that. I thought, man, this guy's not only a great photographer, he's like Buddha. <laughs> Where's he coming up with this? I just thought that was wonderful, but it was a real reminder that, you know, just there's always somebody better than you, and you yeah. can always learn from the, everything, you know. And you just learn from, you know, you can learn. I mean, I'm sure you've taken workshops and, and, and you've done group critiques, and you learn more from the bad pictures that people put up. Then you do from the great ones. The great ones, you just go, wow. And then you have to really think about, you know, why is that great? And you say, ah, man, it's just awesome. But the bad ones, you're like, oh, my God, why did he put that there? And why is that there? He's done no thought to lighting, no thought to moment. And uh, I just think it's uh, imperative that you learn from your mistakes. And, And if you're aware of it and you're serious about it, you can't help but learn from them. 
so obvious. Yeah. The role of editing is a, is a big deal. You've, you've put together two books now and working, and working on a third, is that right? No, I, I, well, yeah, I guess working on a third, but the, the first one, uh, yeah, and the second one has literally just come out. I so, mean, so tell me about the editing process for that first book, because I think that, that in terms of assessing yourself mm-hmm. and assessing your work, uh, there's no better challenge for that than having to put together uh, a collection of your images for a book or for an exhibit. Right. So tell me about that, that initial process in putting together that, the images for that, for that book. It was an extremely unusual situation. I have to make that clear before we go any further because it's, it, uh, you know, I st- when I tell you the story, I'm sure I'll, I, it blows me away. Here, here's how this happened. You know, I told you I started shooting in 2000 and without any sort of thought uh, for selling things or doing a book or having exhibitions, you know, I mean, I, I might have done occasional small, been in a group or something exhibition, but, you know, it was just, I was having fun with it. But the gentleman that sold me the camera, I, I told you, is a friend of mine to this day, and, and he is an accomplished photographer himself, and he's very good at editing. And he was sort of, uh, you know, he'd say, let me see your stuff, like sort of like the editing guru. And, and he would point things out that I didn't even see. You know, I mean, one of my most known, if not my most known picture, is of uh, a guy, you know, standing at a urinal with these this sort of... Uh, montage of Marilyn Monroe looking down laughing at him. When I took that, when I had that picture on a, on a contact sheet, we were going over contact sheets and I took that one and moved it forward. He said, wait, 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 what? Give me that. <laughs> mm. he, goes, he goes, what's this? <laughs> and I said, it's, it's a guy, you know, taking a whiz in a bathroom. <laughs> I just, nobody really wants to see that. He goes, <laughs> you need to print that, Greg. <laughs> and it didn't even occur to me. You know, I just thought it was something I should probably print. Anyway, what I'm trying to tell you is that this first book was an edit that took place over years, okay, mm. of sessions sitting there with this guy, uh, a friend of mine, and, and, and saying, this is a good picture, you know, and this is a good picture. And then whittling it down to where it became like, well, what would you say my best pictures are, you know? Well, this, this was a, a very long, long process. So that when I had my first sort of real full gallery show and this is you know where it gets crazy my first gallery show was in durango colorado at the at the um at the open shutter gallery and uh, it was uh, it, you know maybe i should back up let me i'll keep this brief a friend of mine because it's a crazy story a friend of mine was lived in durango she sent me a, a snail mail okay she cut this thing out of the newspaper said i think you're the craig there's this great gallery up here and i think your stuff would look great you should uh, you should bring some prints up here and show it to them and it just so happened my mom was renting a place there for that month to she lives in arizona to get out of the heat and i said all right great i'll, I'll go visit mom visit my friends take some prints so i took some prints up and showed them to the the woman margie dudley who who runs the place and she was receptive and she said well these are great i really like them um but we're fully booked can you maybe keep in touch we're booked for the next 18 months and i said yeah sure no problem and and i didn't because i'm not really great at that sort of thing Mm -hmm. and so i let it slide and six months later i got an email from from margie and said um uh, craig i've been looking at your work online i really like it uh, it just so happens my favorite photographer is Cartier Brisson too. I, I had said that on my website, and she says we're going to be doing a show of some of his work. And seeing as how your work is so inspired by his, I was wondering if you'd like to 
show some of your work alongside Cartier Brissons. Wow. <laughs> wow, I was right. I really thought uh, friends of mine had hacked my email account and were <laughs> screwing with me. I, I honestly did. I really had to check it a few times. And I realized it was for real. And my first gallery show was, you know, street photography from classic to contemporary, Henri Cartier Brisson and Craig Simico. It was insane. I, I know. This is why I'm telling you. The whole thing is unusual. So it was really, uh, there were like 25 prints that I had in the show there. And then, and then Mr. Cartier Brisson had about 25 there as well. And, they, and uh, that was the show. I, I then emailed, uh, or I sent invitations to, to the Leica Gallery uh, in Germany. Or the, and they said, wow, you took these with the Leica. This is really great. Next thing I know, I was showing at Leica Gallery in Solms at the factory and then in, in uh Frankfurt at, the, at a gallery, and then in January of 2010, uh, at the Salzburg Gallery in in, uh, in Salzburg, the Leica Gallery there, and at that gallery show, the opening, uh, a gentleman named Hendrik Tenois came up and walked right up to me. He owns Tenois Publishing, and he said, "Do you have a uh, do you have a book?" And I said, "No, I don't." He says, "Would you like to do one with us?" And I said, uh, <laughs> sure, you know, and I, I, I didn't know who he was and I thought he might be joking again. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it turns out that he wasn't joking. And he said, you know, do you know who Elliot Irwood is? And I said, yeah, of course I do. He's my favorite, you know, living photographer. And he said, your work reminds me very much of Elliot's. And I said, yeah. He said, you know, we represent him. We do his books as well. Perhaps we could get Elliot to write the foreword for your book, this book oh. that he just mentioned 30 seconds earlier. That, and I kind of went, oh, okay. And then I, I kind of panicked. I'm like, I can't believe this is happening. And I said to him, so what, what would we do the book of? I'm answer, it's a long way to answer your question. I said, what, would, you know, what pictures? He says, just this. There was like, it was a 50 print exhibit. And he said, this. So to answer your question, how did I edit for this book? It essentially was a 10-year process wow. of weeding okay. out bad pictures and just coming up with my, like, 50 best. And the reason I had 50 was be because the Leica Gallery in Frankfurt said, we need 50 images. We want to do the whole gallery of, of your work. So I, I had to come up with more, and that was, a, you know, I, that was rather rapid. I had to come up with. But once he said that, I, I panicked again and thought, wow, you know, okay, I don't know that I'm going to have enough good ones for a book. So I went nuts. I mean, I, I, I started shooting very intensively and I took a trip to, uh, you know, Southeast Asia and I ended up getting about six or seven more images that appear in that book okay. in about a two or three month period that, that, uh, that I was happy with that were, I was very happy with, but it's a long winded way of answering your question, but it's, it was an unusual process. It wasn't like sitting down and going, I've got this work and I'm going to, now I want to do a book. Yeah. It was a very different process. It was it took years. Yeah. So that was the process with the first book. Uh, the the next ones, you know, those are very very different and excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> it really excruciating uh, because I didn't you know have as much time for this next one, and uh, I, I it was just a, a, an entirely different experience. I didn't you know I don't have years of looking at it. Uh, I I didn't take years. I suppose I could have taken years, but I really wanted to uh, make this happen because there's a, a number of, you know, good things happening around India coming up and, uh, and I, it all, it seemed to coalesce a lot of series of events kind of came together and I thought, let's do this book. And I'm, I'm certainly happy with it, but getting there was a, 
it was it was it was traumatic yeah. saying goodbye to pictures you know that you love uh, and I, I gotta ask you a personal question because it's because i i'm curious because i know i how i'm though, though it doesn't seem like it i'm a washington security like any other <laughs> artist out there but I, i i could imagine that for myself if all of this stuff happened uh to me within a relatively short time even if i had put in all the time to get as good as i had gotten at that point that I couldn't help but start comparing myself to other people mm -hmm. and often being at the disadvantage of that comparison. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering for you, you know, having all these things happen, you know, within a very relatively short period of time, how do you sort of keep your, 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 your right perspective? Yeah. Not so much that your head's going to get swollen, swollen up, but that you won't end up self-sabotaging yourself because you're comparing yourself to people who, quote, like you said earlier, are better than you or have put in more time than you. Or, you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what so, you're saying. And it's a very so, good observation and it's difficult. I mean, it is difficult because, you know, I, you know, on the one hand, you know, you say in this short amount of time, but I had, I've been shooting for 10 years before this book happened, Yeah. you know, so, so it wasn't as if it was, uh, you know, it looks like overnight success, but It's really not, but but but. And when I was saying short time, I was I was comparing it like the thirty or forty years, right. as compared to some of the people. Not. Sure. No, I get that. Believe me, I get that, and I am humbled by that fact. It's been pointed out to me by more than one <laughs> photographer. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, you know, what can I say? I mean, I, I get it. You know, I get it, and uh, it's an amazing set of circumstances and real, real good fortune that that, that things have happened the way they have, and. Like you say, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I'm an actor and a writer for God's sake. Yeah. Talk about being a Washington yeah. security. So, <laughs> so yes, uh, it's a, it's a constant, uh, thing that I just, you know, you have to just kind of power through and, and hope that you're doing your best because, you know, right. I mean, literally until that book came out, people asked me what I did. I said, well, you know, I, I'm a writer, I'm an actor, you know, and then, Every, every, then the book came out and I remember telling somebody, they're like, well, what are you going to say you do now? I go, well, I guess I'm, I have to call myself a photographer. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm still, you know, I'm about four years into calling myself a photographer. And there's a lot of, uh, like you said, you know, sort of uh, insecurity that goes with that. It's not easy to deal with. And I, I don't know, I don't know how to say I deal with it. I mean, I, I either deal with it or I suck my thumb in a fetal position under my bed. Right. So I, so I'm just out there. I just keep going shooting and, you know, hope for the best. I find that for me that the only thing that takes it away is going out and shooting. Yeah. Well, it's the only thing because if, if I'm sitting there wrestling with the noise in my head, right. Uh, I'm going to be exhausted and I won't have anything to show for it. So going out there and making the photographs, whether or not they're great photographs or not, right. Uh, just the practice of it. Mm -hmm. helps keep those sort of demons at bay and, and allow me to see my progress. Because uh, the last couple of weekends I've been shooting and I was kind of in traction for three months and, and getting back out there and making photographs and getting back into a groove has been revelatory yeah. for me because not all those shooting days have resulted in great photographs. No, but the no, practice of it, the practice of it felt really good on some days and absolutely crappy on other days. Yeah. But I was I was doing it. And all that stuff, you know, all those insecurities, all those fears, all those doubts, all those negative comparisons sort of went by the wayside for the most part while I was out there, you know, walking the streets and shooting for three or four hours. Well, you know, even more so than 
you know, just natural insecurity of, of, of being an artist, you know, uh, and, and having all this, these doubts is the fact that sort of inherent in photography, the process of street photography in particular, it's a process of failure. You know, I mean, yeah. Gary Winogrand said, you know, photography is about failure, meaning that it is literally part of the process. You, you, you're not going to take a great picture without taking thousands of bad ones, you know, or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you have to get right with the fact that you, you, that's the process. You know, you sort of have to go through all these bad pictures to get to a good one. And it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you walk out and the first picture you get is the greatest picture you've taken in, you know, six months. And, uh, and then the rest of them are failures, but, but there's going to be a lot of failure involved. And that is the thing that is really I wrestle with because, and it's difficult if you, if you do look at the work of a, a great photographers, all you see is their great work. Right. If you're looking at a book, you know, if you don't know any better, you would think that they walk, you know, they fall out of bed and, and take 85 fantastic pictures and then they go to sleep it for a while and, uh, oh, we have another book published. You know, it doesn't work that way at all. And, um, I just think uh, that has been a very, it's been very difficult for me in that regard. I mean, when you're doing comedy, you know instantaneously oh. whether you're succeeding or failing. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't take a genius <laughs> to figure out if people are laughing or not, right? But with photography, it is so incredibly su- uh, subjective. You know, like I said earlier, you know, what some people think is wonderful, other people think is you know, inane or, or, or obscene or, you know, whatever it is, you know, in their minds. So there's no sort of, I mean, and I guess you could say the same about, about comedy, but for the most part, you know, most people will laugh at the same thing if it's genuinely funny, right? You can take a genuinely good photograph and not everybody's going to agree that mm-hmm. it's, they like it. And so that's, you know, that's, that's been a difficult transition for me, you know, to try to figure that out. But my goal is not to please them necessarily. My goal is to communicate what I'm seeing and, 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 and hope that they will appreciate it and get something out of it in the way that people get something out of reading a novel or, you know, or watching a great movie or something, you know, they feel more connected. You know, that's really my goal. But, but if I can make them smile, I tell you what a great joy of mine is when I do have a show going on. You know, sometimes I just go to the gallery and just like watch people looking at the pictures, and 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 it's 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 extremely interesting to see how they react to various pictures. And if they're, I mean, I've seen people like start cracking up aloud, you know, mm-hmm. looking at the picture, and they'll be with somebody and they'll go, "Hey, get over here! Look at you know, look at this picture." That's a tremendous feeling. It really makes me feel like I'm sort of you know performing comedy in a, in a way. Oh, you know, please. you were talking earlier about how. It takes you a while either to get in the flow or if you're, you have all these demons in your head and you need to get out. And even if you're taking bad pictures, you're feeling better about it. The, the, the idea of, uh, of being in that flow state is really what they, there's a great book literally called Flow and it's written by this uh, PhD and, and, and it's all about this flow state, which is a state in which you're in utter concentration on what you're doing. And that is as close as he, he says that we as scientists can come up with a, a qualification for the word happy, basically. Mm. You, you're happiest when you are in a state of utter concentration on what you're doing. I mean, the Buddhists would say you're, it's being present. You know, you're just utterly concentrating on what the moment is, right? And I've found that, you know, sort of over my life, 
there's a, you know, I've tried to, when I read this book and I was taking a class about it, I, I started thinking like, well, what are, you know, when am I in that kind of state? You know, one is when I'm on stage in front of an audience, you know, and, and everybody's laughing. I, you, it's, it's the weirdest feeling. You lose track of time. You know, you sort of, you're only conscious of hearing the laugh and, and timing the wave of the laugh mm -hmm. and then hitting them again with the next one at the right moment and everything. It, it becomes a, it's this big heaving kind of uh, animal that, you know, has a life of its own and, and you forget everything else. You're utterly concentrated on that. Another one is sometimes I, I, I haven't done it in a while, but I used to race cars and, uh, and, and I love to drive fast because I have, you, you know, you have no time to think about anything else. You're just trying to stay alive and, and go <laughs> on the road. Right. And, and I realized that that was a flow experience for me. And another one is when I'm out in the street shooting photographs. One of the things that they say is, you know, you, you find that you, you know, you forget to eat. And in my case, if I forget to eat, that's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that happens in those instances. I, I think the book was saying like the people who report some of the most or, or happiest people, I don't know if it's happy is the right word, but most content are like brain surgeons or neurosurgeons because, mm. you know, they're there for like six hours or whatever it is, eight hours uh, utter concentration. I mean, obviously they can't be thinking about, you know, what they're going to get at Albertsons after that, <laughs> you know, they, they got to be thinking about what they're doing and nothing else. Yeah. And, um, and that's, I think, you know, life is a never ending, uh, search for those moments of being in that state of just utter concentration or, or being totally present in, in, in what you're Absolutely. doing, whatever it is. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend one other photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone. Someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. And uh, so who would that one photographer be and why? Oh, boy. Well, you know, I mean, it's probably pretty obvious from our conversation. <laughs> uh, and I suspect most people pretty much know who Cartier-Bresson is. But for me, he is still the gold standard, you know, and... Uh, I just, I, I just don't think that uh, I've seen any anybody that has consistently produced so many amazing photographs. There are many other photograph photographers who do wonderful work, and you know, um, but but that guy on a consistent basis, it was incredible. And if you really look at the work, like you expressed earlier, what you discovered in it, you will see that it's much more than, than about a, a, a decisive moment. It's a decisive moment in a geometrically beautiful pattern, most of them mm -hmm. are, and, and the, that are visually satisfying. And what I mean by that, it just, you know, it feels right if you have any sort of sense of design about you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, like when you're, it's like hanging a picture on the wall and it's crooked, you know, it just, it, it bothers you. You get it centered right and, you know, there's this, ah, okay, that's better, right? You know, you have that feeling, at least I do, every time I look at a Cartier-Bresson picture because I'm like, look at that. Everything sits right in that picture. Yeah. That guy's something else. <laughs> so where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, I don't know uh, when this is actually going to air, but in, until May 25th, 2014, uh, there's uh, a 50-plus uh, print exhibition going on at the Leica Gallery, Los Angeles. Um, and I have two books uh, on. Uh, one, the, my latest book is India Unposed, and uh, that can only be purchased through the website of indiaunposed.com. Um, 
And uh, also, my first book, Unposed, can be found on Amazon and, and through uh, most stores, art, art stores, bookstores around the world, actually. But, uh, and they can also just go to my website, and they probably get all that information as well. Semetko.com, uh, S-E-M-E-T-K-O. Great. Greg, it was fun talking to you. Thank you so much. I, it was totally my pleasure. It was a great discussion. Thanks. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the show. Remember that my latest book, Portraits of Strangers, is available for purchase. And for loyal listeners of the show, you can enjoy 30% off the ebook or any other book or DVD that I've produced, including my first book, Chasing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light. Click on the link on the show notes and use the promo code PORELLO, that's P as in Paul, E-R-E-L-L-O, to receive your discount. The Candid Frame is brought to you by the generous contributions of listeners just like you, as well as the work of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.